From the courtroom to the tabloids, welcome to All Rise, the podcast that lets you be the jury. We will discuss and debate provocative celebrity news stories, court cases, political controversies, crime, and other hot topics of the day. With on-the-scene correspondents, officials directly related to the issue, and a panel of guests that will leave no evidence to the imagination, All Rise swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your host... Dylan Howard. Justice delayed and justice denied. This is All Rise, Episode 5, Season 1. A teen beauty battered to death with a golf club. For decades, her family claimed money and power kept her killer out of jail. Was that killer a Kennedy? Plus, Bill Cosby delivered a sweet birthday present. His sentencing delayed as he lives in a prison palace before being jailed on sexual assault convictions. Is there two tiers of justice in this country? One for you and I, and one for the famous. They're the questions we tackle on All Rise, Season 1, Episode 5. Now, the judge in the Bill Cosby trial has announced that Cosby will be sentenced on September 24. That's five months after he was convicted of sexual assault. Now, this date was announced by Judge Stephen O'Neill on Tuesday after Cosby's lawyers had asked to delay sentencing until December. Why? Bill Cosby turns 81 years of age in July and is likely to face a sentence of up to 10 years in prison. Now, critics of Judge Stephen O'Neill are saying that this is two tiers of justice, justice for some and justice for the A-list. Here to discuss that is National Enquirer National Correspondent Doug Montero and Scott Ross is perhaps America's top legal private investigator who worked as the private eye for the defence of the Bill Cosby trial. First, Doug Montero. This announcement that Bill Cosby will not be sentenced until after his 81st birthday, does this reek of the two-tier system of justice in this country? Lock him up. That's the word that I got uh, after I exclusively interviewed one of the jurors that sat through the whole trial and felt that the testimony provided by the victim and by the supporting victims, five women who came forward, that all the testimony was consistent and the guilt was overwhelming and his recommendation is lock them up. The juror, however, did not want to indicate how many years Cosby should spend behind bars for his crime, but however, he felt that the disgraced comedian, should at least serve some time in a jail cell. What you're telling me here is now you have spoken to some of the jurors because none of the jurors' names have yet been released. Indeed, the court has uh, denied a motion by many media outlets uh, to release the names of the jurors, but it seems to me like you have the inside word. Absolutely. And I could understand why the judge would not want to release the names of some of these jurors. We spoke to one juror who actually told us that during and after the trial, they were stalked. Some of them felt that they were being followed. There was an atmosphere of intimidation. So it makes absolute sense not to release the names of these jurors to the general public. 
However, National Enquirer Investigation was able to get our hands on the names of all the jurors, and that's who we went and interviewed. Wow. So this particular juror, do you have a name for this individual? Yes, we do. And what can you tell us about this individual and and what he said took place inside the jury deliberation room? This is a 58-year-old man who, oddly enough, lives just a few blocks away from uh, Bill Cosby's mansion in uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. And he said that there was really no arguing as far as the facts and the guilt are concerned. Everybody seemed to agree over the fact that Bill Cosby was guilty. And um, it was almost like a slam dunk. So, Scott Ross, you're joining us from California. You were the private investigator for the defense of the Bill Cosby trial. You worked with Tom Mesereau, and you've worked on some very famous Hollywood cases, including Scott Peterson, Michael Jackson, Winona Ryder, and many more. To hear Doug Montero describe what the jurors are saying about what took place in the deliberation rooms, are you surprised that it was such an easy verdict that they realized? I'm not terribly surprised because of the way the judge sort of stacked the case against Mr. Cosby. I do have a question, though, when you say the the disgraced comedian, was that is that your word or did that come from one of the jurors? Doug, did they call Bill Cosby disgraced or was that your uh, language? That's my language. That's your language. Well, Scott, I mean, the guy has been convicted. No, understood, but I'm just saying, it, be, because something like that coming from a juror would potentially show a prejudice, so I was curious. The other issue that, that so people... Let, let's, let's, let's break that down. Why would that show a prejudice? Well, because if you go in there and you've determined that he's guilty of every single charge, every single allegation, when clearly he's not, clearly the LAPD opted to walk away from an allegation. I worked with Harlan Braun on that one as well. But when you have a situation where LAPD is is walking away and other prosecutors are walking away, you can't just arbitrarily say disgraced because that means that he's guilty of everything when he's been convicted of one uh, one specific issue. You know, again, what's... Uh, Janice Dickinson, you know, was completely ridiculous when she said she opened her eyes and saw America's dad in 1982 when the show wasn't released until 1984. So again, how does he become America's dad all of a sudden in 1982? But again, you have to look at these cases on a one-by-one-by-one basis. And in this particular case with with Constant, there was a series of questions and issues. And and frankly, I don't think any of those were proven. But, you know, I'm defense-oriented. And so when I hear a juror, if a juror made a comment about a disgrace, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was going on with the jurors that we are now starting to learn that are starting to come to light. Like like what, Scott? Well, Stacey Brown, I, I have some information that, that the team is going to be using, which I obtained on my own. And Stacey Brown, which I'm not going to discuss right now, Stacey Brown wrote an article Stacey Brown, of course, he's been a longtime contributor to the National Enquirer and has appeared on this very podcast, All Rise. Yeah, I guess. And and the other side of the coin is I'm not a big fan of Stacey Brown. You know, again, he testified against us in Michael Jackson. He got up and he said a bunch of ridiculous things uh, against Michael, but neither here nor there. What I'm getting at is that's why I was sort of curious as to the word, you know, disgrace. But, you know, with regard to sentencing, can I talk about that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. There's a uh, famous California case published and upheld by the California Supreme Court, and I have to apologize that 99% of my reference is going to be California because, frankly, I've been licensed here since 1983. 
So, you know, 95% of my work has been California, northern or southern, but still California. And there's a case called Cunningham, and it's, it's an issue that's going to come up. Um, and if you look up Cunningham, which interestingly was also a sex case, but in, in People v. Cunningham um, was made an offer by the DA of six years. So essentially what happens is the DA sits around and they decide, hey, we've decided this case is, is worth six years of punishment. So in everybody's best interest, we'll offer him six years. Cunningham said no, went to trial, was sentenced, was convicted, and then sentenced to 18 years, I believe. And then his attorney filed... In his appeal, it was more of a sentencing appeal. Say, wait a minute, the people of the state of California made a conscientious decision, made the offer of six years, and then decided to punish Mr. Cunningham because he had the audacity to go to trial and defend himself, exercise his Sixth Amendment privilege of trial when he lost, now we're going to punish him. We're going to sentence him to 18 years. You have the same situation with Mr. Cosby, where Kevin Steele publicly came out and said, we offered him two months in sexual registration. He said no. So how is it all of a sudden that they were willing to accept that, but then Mr. Cosby had the audacity to challenge them, exercise his Sixth Amendment privilege, Bill of Rights, the United States Constitution, and go to trial, and now we're going to hammer him. We're going to stick him in prison. We're going to hammer his head into the pavement where two years ago, if he would have just taken the deal and put a bracelet on like he's doing now for two months and, and registered as a sex offender, we were perfectly content with that. So what's changed? Isn't that just the criminal justice system, though? Bill Cosby had two trials. A mistrial was declared in the first. He was offered a plea arrangement. He rejected that. He went to trial. He was found guilty. Big deal. He rolled the dice. And he's entitled by the United States Constitution to go to trial. And you can't penalize somebody. You can't punish somebody. You can't arbitrarily go after somebody because they exercise their constitutional rights. Plain and simple. I mean, that's what it's all about. You don't have to testify. You know, every defendant, the judge will ask every single defendant, you've confirmed with your attorney that you're not going to testify. You understand your Fifth Amendment privilege. You understand you're not required to. We're going to give an instruction to the jury that they're not required to testify, and you can't hold that against somebody. So, again, what's the difference? When you exercise your Fifth Amendment, you have a Bill of Rights. You have constitutional all right. So, but when you have the audacity to challenge us and cost us money, we have the right to put you in prison. That's just absurd. It's idiotic. It's insane. And you can no longer do that in the state of California. If they make an offer, they have to abide by it. It's been assessed. It's been interpreted. It's a Californian. It's now in the California Supreme Court, and they, they, they upheld it. So what's different in Pennsylvania? Scott. Uh, the problem with that argument is that the judge has not issued the sentence yet, so therefore it is premature for you to start saying that there has been an injustice since you don't know what Bill Cosby's final punishment is going to be. Well, I'm not saying there's an injustice. What I'm saying is that it's a valid argument for sentencing. Um, trials at the conclusion pre-trial uh, or pre-sentencing you're allowed to file a sentencing memo. Again, you know, typically they're, they're mitigating circumstances, they're lists of 
this is why the individual should get whatever the potential sentence is. And so it's not premature for a sentencing memo. It's It would be premature to complain, but I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing out that, in fact, there are laws in California. The civil aspect is also something that can't be ignored. You're talking about a man who has no vision. You're talking about somebody who is not who, like, again, a Stevie Wonder who's been blind at birth and has learned how to adjust to it. You're talking about somebody who lost his eyesight after many years, and so it's not as simple as just saying, okay, he has to go to prison because he's he's in a position, again, if you've dealt with inmates, he's in a position of somebody who can be extorted. He's in a position of somebody who can be um, um, shoved around and, and enabled to defend themselves when you can't see. Um, and again, the alternative would be to put him into a solitary confinement, which is not really reasonable. You know, you can't just say, well, we're going to prevent a civil suit. Therefore, we're going to put him in solitary confinement, potentially the rest of his life. And again, I apologize, and I can only refer to California, but the federal government had to step in and take over the medical care of the California Department of Corrections many years ago because people weren't getting proper medical attention. And so you're talking about the state picking up the tab on that, and once he's sentenced, he becomes sort of a ward of the state of Pennsylvania. And as such, whether he has insurance money or whatever, they're responsible for his medical attention, not himself. He he can't be forced to pay out of pocket to go get medical attention now scott uh, S- scott excuse me now um uh based on the, the guilty verdict uh bill cosby has to undergo a sex assessment report or a sexual assessment uh investigation now from what i understand after speaking to the executive director of the board their investigation is designed to determine whether bill cosby has some sort of a mental abnormality which makes him a sexual predator. The question here is, is Bill Cosby going to participate in the report and the investigation? Does he plan on talking to these individuals from the state to try to explain to them why he is not a sexual predator? That would be a question for Mr. Mesero. I would have no idea. So I wanted to ask you, Scott, Tom Mesero, moments after the verdict was announced on April 24, declared that most certainly there will be an appeal. What avenues for appeal does Mr. Cosby have? There would be one to suggest that Judge Stephen O'Neill had a bias or a conflict of interest, and I, for one, reported that there were most certainly claims suggesting that he did or that the jury was biased in some capacity, what avenues for appeal are available to Bill Cosby? Well, again, you know, Judge O'Neill kept changing or altering his rulings, and sort of an FYI, um, if you want inside information, um, Becky James, who was one of the attorneys that was present of uh, the law firm of Greenberg Gross, Becky was a federal prosecutor for 20 plus years and is actually an appellate attorney. And that was uh, her function during the trial. Uh, Becky was sitting there the entire time. She did interview or, or she did question a few of the witnesses um, that we called the business records and expert witnesses. But when all is said and done, Becky's role there was to sit there and sort of gather information on uh, the appeal if it became necessary. So, um, you know, as far as the issues, unfortunately, I'd probably have to revert that back again to the attorneys. I think the judge changing his ruling midstream, reversing himself, 
saying that it was going to be, you know, the same rules up front and then saying it's a completely different trial. You know, again, there was a prejudicial issue with the court and and giving us certain time to prepare before they announced the 404B. So it there was a, a ton of extraneous work um, investigating the other 19. And again, you know, you look at the DA's office and you look at the Montgomery County Sheriff's and the Montgomery County Detectives Bureau and the Cheltenham PD, you're talking about a monstrous staff. You know, from our standpoint, we don't have that luxury. We don't have unlimited funds and you can't just sort of arbitrarily start investigating the backgrounds of 19 people who were scattered all over the country. And so it created a lot of stress and it created a lot of problems. I'm not saying it wasn't done by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, the constant upheaval of having no idea what the judge was going to do, um, gathering information that ultimately we came to find out the judge wasn't going to allow. Robert uh, Russell is a classic example. The judge refused to allow him to testify to all kinds of things. You know, at one point he wasn't going to allow Margot Jackson. And a week prior to the trial starting, apparently one of the detectives showed her a photograph of Margot Jackson. I, I'm a little hard-pressed to believe that, that that took place a week beforehand, but whatever. And all of a sudden, Constan said, oh yeah, I remember her. So you know, again, there were so many different things going on behind the scenes, so many different potential rulings that were creating problems and causing us to shift one direction to the other. And, you know, the judge constantly reversing himself, you know, again, I'm sure there's all kinds of error in there. But I'm not an attorney and I'm not an appellate attorney. So it's also my understanding that one of the jurors, a white female woman who was identified as juror number three, was in fact the neighbor of a court reporter that was working on the case, which would seemingly be some form of conflict of interest. I was actually not aware of that. That's my information. Let me ask you this, though, Scott. America has already convicted Bill Cosby. And America, when I say America, I say the court of public opinion. The amount of women that have claimed that Bill Cosby sexually assaulted and in horrible circumstances allegedly raped them has climbed north of 60. He was on trial for one particular case. Do you believe that Bill Cosby is an innocent man of those other allegations made by more than 60 women? I don't know enough about them to make a comment on all of them. Um, But I will say that even the ones that were brought in, we found a witness to say that one of them was flat out lying and jumping on the bandwagon. We had another one who got up and testified and said, I don't know what happened. Can't say anything happened at all. And all of a sudden she's teary eyed and upset. And I, I know the juror that you're referring to. I don't know her, but I know I know which one you're talking about. You know, you're talking about people, again, uh, Dickinson, who got up there and said America's dad when when it it just wasn't true. But we were only going to be able to bring in so much information. And there were other witnesses. You know, this is the type of case where some pretty important key witnesses just refused to get involved. And you can only do so much, you know. Um, It's not the first time we had this. We had this on Michael Jackson. We had the exact same thing. It was a sexual allegation. And a lot of potential witnesses, some of the big-name people, just flat out didn't want to get involved. They refused. You bring up Michael Uh, Jackson, and I think it's a very, very critical discussion point when it comes to the Cosby trial, because Tom Mesereau, 
was obviously involved in the Michael Jackson trial and won an acquittal in 2005 for Michael Jackson. And he employed very similar tactics in this trial, and that was to attack. The best form of defense, according to Tom Mesereau, is to attack. Attack the credibility, attack the authenticity, attack the story, attack the narrative of each one of these witnesses. He did that with Andrea Constant by raising the suggestion and the proof that she got paid off by Bill Cosby. Now, it worked. It worked for Michael Jackson. The witnesses were attacked one by one by Mesereau, and the jury, well, it pleaded enough seed of doubt in their mind. But in this instance with Cosby, it didn't. Now, Mark Garagos said it was the strategy from hell. He should never have done this, that a California lawyer swanning into town with no awareness of the local justice system really should not have employed those tactics. How do you react to that? Um, You know, I worked with uh, Mark for six years. If he wants to get into that, I disagree with with Mark. Um, uh, But but why did it not? Why did it not work? I can give you a list of cases. I can give you a list of Mars cases where he did the exact same thing that didn't work. The fact remains that no matter how how much of a nexus there was between the two, there was also some significant differences between the two. And and in that, um, you know, you you go with the formula that works. And unfortunately, what you're doing, you can you can say it's attacking the individual, but the truth of the matter is, what you're doing is questioning the individual's ability to either recollect the situation or the individual's secondary intent. You know, Andrea Constant was about money. It's the same thing with Michael. You know, we fought to keep the dollar figure of, in Michael's case, of the Jordy Chandler matter out. And the the, the thing that people tend to ignore. You know, everybody, if he didn't do anything, why would he pay out $20 million? But the thing that people pay no attention to and ignore is the fact fact that Michael Jackson's insurance company is the one that paid that money. Bill Cosby was told by his attorneys, you just got to write a check to make it go away. So he wrote a check. You know, people, people think that these individuals are making these conscientious decisions to decide how much money I'm going to pay or whatever the case may be. They rely on their attorneys, much the same way that Michael relied on on Tom, the same way that Mr. Cosby relied on Tom, the same way that plenty of people have relied on Tom cases we've worked on. And when you get somebody who who sort of is going to do things their own way, and I'll give you a classic example. I can tell you about Suge Knight. Tom and I were, were representing Suge Knight in his murder case. And his his robbery case. And and the minute they stop listening and want to do things their own way, and the minute they start creating a problem like you don't know what you're doing, you know, they want it handled their way, you leave, you walk, you tell them, get somebody else who's going to be able to help you because you're you're becoming your own worst enemy. And Tom clearly knows what he's doing. He wouldn't have the success rate. And unfortunately, he's had a ton of success, but nobody pays attention to because not every case is a celebrity case. And the fact is that that's a decision that he made. I can, again, I can, I can give you a slew of cases where Mark has made incredibly bad decisions. And frankly, Mark knows nothing about the case. He has ab- absolutely no business of getting involved. Scott, do you talking think, about things he has nothing about. Scott, do you think Bill Cosby would have been convicted if this was pre-hashtag Me Too? I don't know. I, I'm not, I mean, I, I'm familiar with it, but it's not something that I've paid much attention to. So I don't know. I don't know what kind of an influence that that had on the trial. Unfortunately, I think we live in an era 
where there's more money and there's more background. I mean, you had jurors, you had one juror going on television the next day, prearranged. So again, you know, I think that, that people are looking for their 15 minutes. I think that people are looking for money. If you remember in Jackson, the two elderly male and female in the jury tried to change their, you know, wanted to go back to say, we've changed our mind because they couldn't get a book deal. Aphrodite Jones was, was Michael should go to prison. And then when we won, all of a sudden turned around and wrote a book called what? Something conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. Now all of a sudden she's friends with Jesse Ventura and everything's a conspiracy. So the, the bottom line is, I think that some of these people look like there's money involved if they convict somebody. If they're not guilty, they walk away. Nobody cared anything about Michael after the fact, as far as his issues, because he wasn't guilty, plain and simple. And so I think that that has a lot to do with it, probably more so than me, too. I think that these people wanted to be on the jury. You know, we had that issue with jury number nine and juror number 11. Uh, I don't know if that was reported on. Again, I was working, so I wasn't following it. But the fact remains that some people just wanted to get on the jury. They they want to be there. They want to have something to say after the fact. And I don't believe there's any money in somebody who's acquitted. Did you ever see anything on Robert Blake's jurors after the fact? No. Yeah, you're not gonna. He was acquitted. So I think that that plays its own prejudice. As far as the Me Too, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I answered your question. I apologize. In my opinion, I think the Me Too movement would have had a minor role in determining this case uh, at this particular time. In my opinion, helicoptering an attorney from out of town to go into small town Pennsylvania, and I know this is right outside of Philadelphia, but when you actually get on the ground, it's, it's really Montgomery County, like a Mayberry, small sort of town place. And my opinion is... They, they should have kept the lawyer local. I think that a local lawyer knows how to handle the jurors from that community, knows exactly where their sweet spot is, and knows how to talk to them and how to approach them and how to get them on their side. I disagree. Doug, I think that the Me Too movement had a significant and profound impact on the jurors here. Here were 12 men and women who sat in the juror's box and had to make a decision based on one case, but a case coloured by so much publicity that began with Bill Cosby and continues to this very day. To me, it was awfully difficult for those jurors to overlook the tsunami of media coverage about Me Too. And I think that that adversely affected Bill Cosby in a case that on this very show, our expert panel on episode one all agreed, well, it's been justice delayed not necessarily justice denied with the judge's decision that Bill Cosby won't be sentenced until September. Doug Montero, we appreciate your expert wisdom from the field in Montgomery County. And Scott Ross, to you too. Thank you very much for your time. You're going to stick around with us because we're going to take a short break. And then I want to uh, pose some questions to you about some of the other famous cases that have dominated your successful career in private investigative work. And that includes, as we heard in that Bill Cosby segment, Michael Jackson, Scott Peterson, and others. This is All Rise, Season 1, Episode 5. Before the break, we were talking about Bill Cosby and the man who provided the insight into the defence case was Scott Ross, one of 
Hollywood's top private investigators. Now, I wanted to talk to Scott about uh, his work in the law enforcement field and how he came to be a Hollywood private investigator and what a Hollywood private investigator does. Is he the fixer, like Michael Cohen, who is at the centre of the scandal involving Stormy Daniels and President Donald Trump? Scott, tell me a bit about your career and and how you got involved in uh, private eye work. Well, I was never law enforcement. Let's qualify that right up front. Well, private eyes, um, private eyes to an sure. extent are involved in law enforcement, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying I, I, I don't have a, a uh, law enforcement history. But I linked up years ago the former FBI agent. He was actually the head of uh, Los Angeles uh, branch. He was what's called the SAC, special agent in charge. You know, he was so high up on the food chain when he retired from the bureau, he used to scribble down information and throw it at some, you know, lower echelon and say, do this, do that. He he started with the bureau in 1951, so he wasn't computer literate. But basically, he hired me, or we started working together, I should say. And that's where I got my, my formal training was actually, you know, through, his name was Ted Gunderson, so through Ted, through the bureau. And that, again, was back in 1983-84 when we started working together. So it was quite a while ago. But, you know, when you use the term fixer, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I've done more than my share, believe me, but that doesn't include making payoffs. You know, I, I, I have been able to find people. I've recovered some sex tapes. I won't get into those. Oh, no, we uh, have to get into those. Come on now. We're not, that's, <laughs> we're not getting into that's those. the tabloid fodder we love here on All Rise. How does one one recover a sex tape? I've recovered more than my share. Um, Your private collection? Nope. I have returned (laughs) them all. I'm being facetious. (laughs) No interest. I assume for for high-profile celebrities. Yeah, you know, it's not that I... I, I don't know what the attraction is, for lack of a better term, but unfortunately, by the time they come to somebody like me, regardless of who it is, you know, and they're in trouble. And I, again, I've worked with a lot of the big name attorneys, and again with Jackson, with Harlan, with with Blake, it was Harlan Braun, and and Harlan is connected to Marty Singer, and I work with Marty Singer's office. So again, if if a celebrity has an issue and they contact Marty, Marty's office will contact me. So. So let's talk about Robert Blake. You mentioned Robert a short time ago. You were the lead investigator in that case, working with attorney Harlan Braun, and you got to know Robert Blake very, very well. Now, Robert Blake was accused of murdering his wife, Bonnie. Do you think he did it? Oh, absolutely not. Define did it. Did he pull the trigger? No, absolutely not. Was he involved with it? I believe he was, yes, absolutely. How was he involved in it? (laughs) Um... Yeah, that that's a difficult one to answer. But in my personal belief, I'll leave it for now, for now, that both juries got it right, that he was responsible for it, but he did not pull the trigger. So the acquittal was completely accurate and the civil judgment was completely accurate. So um, at another point in time, I'll be happy to discuss that with you, not today. Do you have evidence? That's a great question. Do I have uh, actual physical corroboration? No. Do I have information and uh, a series of, what would you call it? Uh, there's, there's a way to confirm it, yes. I have the information that would lead to that way, but it would require uh, law enforcement intervention. So 
when you mention law enforcement intervention, are you suggesting that uh, this potentially could be a significant breakthrough for law enforcement or you would require law enforcement to assist in getting the evidence? It would be more of a breakthrough issue. You have a double-edged sword, though. Law enforcement is still convinced. Again, Ronito, who I, I speak with periodically, and Steve Gucci, both two of the, the lead detectives, along with Brian Tyndall, who's now retired, but Ron and Steve both believe that Blake pulled the trigger. It's not as if they're going to go back and reinvent the wheel. And since he's already been tried for the crime and since they've already you know, taken their position and have accused them to sort of step back now and say, okay, so we have some potential new information. When I say law enforcement intervention, I'm actually talking about, say, convening a grand jury, bringing in some people, giving them immunity, and letting them tell their story, and and I think you'd be able to move forward from there. So the killer is still at large, in your opinion? I, I have no idea as as far as that. I I mean, he could have, or she could have, long since passed away. I I've not checked. I don't know. But you know the name of the killer, or who you believe is the killer? Yeah, I, I have my suspicions. I have I have my information that I that I believe is is pretty significant, and I believe can be ultimately again confirmed. But it's going to take law enforcement intervention. I can't convene a grand jury. I can't grant somebody immunity. Who would they grant um, immunity to? A series think- of witnesses, about four people. Would Robert Blake be one of those? Sure, absolutely. You think that they should grant immunity to Robert Blake? They have no choice. Can't do anything about it. Well, there's no double jeopardy, so he can't be tried again. Correct. So you suggest that they offer him immunity and he tells the truth by coming clean to reveal the killer. Let's back up. So forget all of this for now, but let's back up. One of the things that's sort of interesting is that, again, you have to understand during the discovery process, as you know, we get all of the discovery. We get everything that that the prosecution has done. And in the discovery process, one of the things that, that ultimately happened, and I remember when it happened, is they served some people with grand jury subpoenas. So the LAPD went out and served them, but the DA's office never convened the grand jury, and they were never executed. So, again, had this been done, had they actually followed through with it, I think that there would be a very, very different outcome to it. Why have you not, be a whole different trial. Why have you not looked to see if, if this supposed killer is indeed still alive? I mean, that's a critical component to this bombshell that you're just revealing sure. here on All Rise. Because I just haven't. I haven't. It's it's not something, you know, again, I, I've been working. I have cases and, and, and things that I work on, and this is not something that I work on. And I, frankly, don't really care about Robert Blake. So, you know, he, he's kind of the least of my concerns. Um, I don't think that LAPD would do anything about it based on any information. I don't believe the DA would reopen. You know, I, I don't think anybody cares. I think it's been 15 years and the world's moved on. They have their opinions. The family believes what they want to believe, and they're welcome to. Uh, law enforcement believes what they want to believe, and I just don't think that they would do it. You know, they're welcome to serve with a grand jury subpoena, and I'll go in there and tell them anything they want. You make a very compelling point, and the theme of today's podcast is all about justice denied. And if new information can be presented that would be a major breakthrough in this case, which it certainly sounds like you're in possession of that, then law enforcement must take a good look at this. That's what law enforcement is supposed to do. 
You know, one of the things with Blake that people, again, tend to forget, but one of the things that was fascinating is, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm really close on the dates, but I'm a little bit off, but he was arrested on April 18th, if I remember correctly. On April 19th, that was a Thursday, and I can explain that, which makes it really interesting. And on April 19th, Bernie Parks, who was then chief of police, resigned. And if you remember when they held the press conference, they didn't say we've arrested a suspect, that we've arrested Robert Blake as a potential suspect. What they said is the Bonnie Bakley murder has been solved. So right then and there, the prejudice alone from making that comment sort of creates an aura of we're telling you that this is the guy that did it. So they have taken that position from day one. The secondary issue is that when they arrest people on a Thursday, and the reason that it was structured and organized to do it on a Thursday after 4.30, because he's entitled to be arraigned within 48 hours. Well, if you arrest him on Thursday evening, you don't have to bring him into court till Monday morning. So they had an, they had an opportunity to take the weekend to get everything put together. So with, with that in the back of your mind, I went in to see Earl Caldwell, who was in custody, who was arrested, give or take the same time, different location. But I went into lockup to see Earl Caldwell, and he was at uh, what the LAPD calls the glass house. He was in jail at uh, headquarters. And in order for me to go in and see him, the jailer said I had to get permission from robbery homicide. There's always somebody upstairs at that time. There was always somebody, and it's not like the new LAPD headquarters. You could just walk in, and I went in, and I went to the elevator, went upstairs, and ran into a couple of people working on the case whom I know (laughs) who freaked out about the fact that I had just walked into the office. And then I went down to see Earl, but neither here nor there. The point is that if they had done what their intention was as far as convening the grand jury, I think, you know, and, and sure, they can go back and do it. There's no statute. They want to serve me. I'll come in. I, I'm, you know, I'm fine with it all. Um, but again, as far as just walking through the front door saying you have to reopen this, I don't think that'll ever happen. One of the other cases that you worked on was perhaps the most famous celebrity trial in the world, and that was the 2005 molestation trial of Michael Jackson. What was Michael Jackson yeah. like during the trial? I remember seeing him, you know, arrive in his pajamas that day, standing up on the SUV. What was he like? The the SUV incident was under Garagos' watch. It was not not under Tom's watch, so I wasn't there. And I really had virtually no contact with him. I I was introduced to him, met him, and introduced to him on one occasion. Shook his hand briefly. And he would come in in the morning and say, good morning, Scott, thank you for being here. And that was kind of the extent of our contact. Um, Tom and I had dinner at his house uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, Michael was there, but he didn't join us. And short of that, I dealt with the with the staff, with the uh, Joe Marcus, who also testified, who was the ranch manager. And, you know, the one that had the most contact with Michael was Susan Yu. Susan was constantly on the phone with him pretty much every night. She talked to him for hours and hours and hours. What I found fascinating with Michael is that he would sit at council table and he would write down little notes on post-its. And, and typically, we see it all the time, but typically it's the client handing the attorney a question. Michael would make these little notes, look at them, and then stick them in his pocket. So I, I always wondered what he was writing down because it wasn't questions. He wasn't giving them to Tom. He wasn't giving them to Susan. He wasn't giving them to Sanger. So I, for the life of me, had no idea what he was doing, sitting there writing down these, scribbling down these little notes. So- but. I mean, you mentioned earlier that obviously you get access to discovery on the prosecution side. Do you believe that the verdict was correct in 2005? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the issues that, again, there are two issues that the prosecution skirted right across, and it was rather convenient. But, you know, they didn't address the way and the manner in which the accuser got down to Florida, you know, on a on a, a plane. You know, they made it sound like, and he got on a plane with Chris Tucker, and lo and behold, he's in Florida, and then all of this takes place in Florida. Well, the fly in that ointment is when they presented a series of calls, they had all of these unindicted co-conspirators, David Legrand, Garagos, uh, Conitzer, I forget all the names, and they had all these, quote, unindicted co-conspirators. And the reason they did that is so they could admit hearsay evidence. But the fact is that, that they, they put up this dog and pony show about all of these phone calls, this one called that one, that one called that one, but there were no calls to Chris Tucker. So when I got the records, I went through the phone records, and I found two calls from the family to Chris Tucker, whom they had met through uh, the comedy, whatever it was, club, store, whatever. And they called Chris Tucker, and I interviewed Tucker, and they called Chris Tucker and said, you know, we can't get out of our apartment. Can we come stay with you? Well, Chris Tucker lives in a gated area up in Tarzana, not very far from me. And he told them that if you want to meet me at Van Nuys Airport tomorrow morning, I'm going to my house in Florida. So when they got to the airport, they were actually going to Orlando, Florida. At that point, the, the family said, you know, Michael's in Miami. So they rerouted the plane. You know, Tucker had paid for it, and they, they all went to Miami instead. And the prosecution glossed over the fact that Michael never asked them to come down to Florida. He never invited them. They just showed up. You know, they happened to know where he was, and they just literally showed up. That was one issue. And the secondary issue was, if you remember, the accuser's brother was about four, mm-hmm. four feet tall and about four feet wide. And they said that Michael had this alarm system, this elaborate alarm system that would warn somebody going up the stairs to where his bed was. And the fly in that ointment is there's no way that this kid could have gotten through the alarm. They said the alarm was in place and the alarm was working. So how could he have possibly caught Michael doing anything? I mean, why do you, if if you're a molester and you set up these alarms, why do you have them if you have no intention of using them or you're ignoring them or whatever the case may be? And again, once again, the prosecution just totally blew that off and glossed over it like it, it just didn't matter. So they wanted it both ways. And you, you can't have it both ways. You know, he he got caught doing it, but he set up alarms so that he wouldn't get caught doing it. Mm. The other thing that they totally ignored is the fact that Michael's bedroom, forget forget everything else. When they talk about kids sleeping in his bedroom, his bedroom was 3,000 square feet. The bedroom. Forget the house. Just the bedroom. And so 3,000 square feet, that's when a kid's sleeping in the room, that's another that's quite a ways away. You know, again, it, it was just all of these things that the prosecution chose to ignore. So, yeah, Michael, yeah, Michael just didn't do it. These people were opportunists. Were you responsible for what was a very successful tactic on behalf of the defense to introduce evidence suggesting that the accuser's mother, Janet Arvizzo, had been guilty of welfare fraud? From my, what I recall, she pled the Fifth Amendment regarding that at the trial. Did you come up with that? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, yes and no. Yes, it was sort of a joint effort. One of the things that I think, the only thing that I did that made a monstrous difference is people were ignoring David Arvizo, the father, 
And the bottom line is I think I was the only one that gave David any time. And when I went out and started talking to him, that's when I started to learn how she had bought this car, how she had this checking account. She had put money into, you know, into her mother's name. I went out and I tried to interview Louise Planker, who ended up marrying uh, one of the prosecutors, Ron Zonin. And Louise Planker was a very wealthy woman. And Louise had written checks you know, again, um, she had written checks, and, and when we subpoenaed copies of the checks and we started to see where they were going, that, that they were going in a in an account for her mother, and, and then subpoenaed the account, yeah, that's how we were able to sort of put together that she was hiding from something. And once we established that she was hiding, um, you know, then you have to look look to figure out why. Um, that's when we found the welfare case because she was collecting welfare. So again, it's, you know, I can't say that I did it all personally. It was a team effort. Um, I was the only investigator working on it, but the attorneys were working on it. You know, they're the ones responsible. Susan primarily was responsible for writing the subpoenas. And I was working with Susan to get those things done. She's a very competent lawyer. She's very easy to work with. And, you know, again, Susan, Susan structured everything. Tom, Tom's the hired gun. He comes in and he, and he does the trial and he, you know, he uses the paperwork and that we're able to supply, but sure. I mean, I was responsible. Susan was responsible and, and Tom executed it. So yeah, it's, it's, and you're talking team effort. I can't sit here and take the credit, but yes, I did find the paperwork. Well, I'd love to talk to you about Scott Peterson, which is another case that you worked on, but I suspect that that might well be a separate episode here of All Rise. We might have to have you back on the program, Scott, because that is one uh, specific case that continues to dominate the headlines even many, many years after Lacey's murder. I will have to have you back on the program for that. But your insights on Bill Cosby, Robert Blake and Michael Jackson have been fascinating at the very least. So thank you very much for your time. Sure, glad I could help. Okay, coming up next, a bombshell in a Kennedy murder case. Michael Skakel served just 11 years after a jury found him guilty of brutally bludgeoning his neighbour, Martha Moxley, to death with a golf club in 1975. And now there's been a dramatic twist in this case with his powerful cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., making a dramatic statement. It's next on All Rise. On Halloween Eve in 1975, a 15-year-old woman was found dead in Connecticut. The 15-year-old found dead across the road from the compound owned by the Skakel family, famously cousins to the Kennedy clan, those Kennedys, Camelot. She was found savagely beaten with a golf club, hit so hard by a six-iron that her face was disfigured and authorities couldn't recognise her identity. The next day, her body found under a tree. Who killed this teen beauty, and why? Joining me on the line is author Leonard Levitt, who wrote the 2005 book Conviction Solving the Martha Moxley Murder. Why is this important? Because the man who was convicted in 2002 of killing Martha Moxley, Michael Skakel, then 15, sentenced to 20 years to life, had his conviction overturned. Leonard, were you surprised by the Supreme Court decision to reverse the conviction? Well, I think that the, um, 
the decision reflects a um, one of the uh, judges on the court took a role that he was not really called on to do, and he went out of his way to ensure that the Connecticut Supreme Court would overturn its previous decision. And he, nothing like corruption or money being passed, was nothing like that. It was his determination that Michael, that the evidence was very weak against Michael Skakel. He had felt that all along. And at this particular point, he was in a position to really manipulate the system so that the court ended up overturning its own decision. Well, let's talk about the evidence in this case, because I think we would all agree that this was a botched investigation from the outset. This was a police department that had not been able to deal with a murder case. In fact, they hadn't dealt with a murder case of this kind ever in the police department's history. The evidence, would you say, was circumstantial or did the evidence point to Michael Skakel? Well, you know, they can be both. I mean, most most evidence is circumstantial, but in this case... You're absolutely right. The police botched the case from the beginning. When you said that they immediately zeroed in on Tommy Skakel, they did not. Their first reaction was to think that a hitchhiker, somebody outside of Greenwich, did this thing, somehow wandered in off the Connecticut Turnpike. And that was the mistake that they made. They could not imagine that somebody from the Skakel home, one of their own, as it were, was capable of doing something like this. So that they found a matching set of clubs to the murder weapon inside the Skakel house the day that Martha's body was found. And yet they never, at that time, tried to get a search warrant to search the rest of the house. That was one of the problems. Well, one of the other problems was they assumed, because two dogs started barking at around just before 10 o'clock, that that was the time that Martha had been murdered. And as one of the lead detectives said to one of the private investigators, private investigator was saying, what about those dogs? And Frank Gard, the lead investigator, said, I sure wish we could interview them. (laughs) (laughs) So right from the beginning, the case was a mess. And they didn't didn't even focus on Michael until 10 to 15 years later uh, when the police reopened the investigation. And the mountains of evidence really did... I mean, this was a tabloid story that dominated the news cycle, and there were confessions, according to individuals close to Michael Skakel, a friend of his, who was his bunkmate, spending 18 months with Skakel in a school after this particular case in which he came forward, this individual, Harry Cranick, and said that Skakel told him, quote, I killed that chick, it got me excited, end quote. He described, supposedly, according to this witness, that he went into a rage, totally losing control, pounding Martha with the club as she lay on the ground. He said, quote, it got me excited. I killed her. I killed her. I killed that chick. That murder confession, according to his former bunkmate, Harry Cranick. Seemingly, it said that all the evidence pointed to Skakel doing this. But why was this conviction overturned? If you could sum it up, was it the evidence of Gregory Coleman, whose credibility was under attack after he admitted that he'd injected himself with heroin before telling the jury that he heard Skakel confess to Moxley's death? No, it was overturned because one of the judges felt that Michael did not get a fair trial. And it was a complete red herring. They blamed the attorney for not questioning a boyfriend of one of Skakel's cousins at 
their home where Michael supposedly was between 9 and 11 o'clock at night. And if you believe that the killing happened then, then maybe you could make a case that uh, the attorney should have interviewed that uh, individual. However, most investigators in this case came to the conclusion that the murder was committed after midnight when Michael returned Mm. home from his cousins. Mm. So that the court really, uh, six is probably a strong word, but they gamed the system. They came up with an excuse to say that the lawyer was incompetent, ergo, Michael is innocent. And that is really where we stand at this point. They, they phonied up a situation. When I say they, I mean the Connecticut Court of Appeals. Or not Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court, the top court. They made something up that wasn't true. They claimed that, this, that the lawyer was incompetent because he did not interview that witness who could have alibied Michael. Not true! The murder didn't occur necessarily when Michael was um, supposedly at his cousin's. It happened when he came back home. Now, Martha Moxley's mother, Dorothy, spoke to RadarOnline.com last week. And to paraphrase what Dorothy said, she said, it's time to let Martha rest in peace. What did the Moxley family believe? Did they believe that Michael Skakel did this? They did. They they did. I think... All the Moxleys want is closure in this case. I mean, he was convicted. He was convicted on appeal. Enough is enough already. Um, And the interesting, you know, the thing with the Skakel family and the Kennedys is they keep coming up with with the theories that the killer was some stranger. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. has played an evil role in this case. After Michael was convicted, he wrote a long article for the Atlantic magazine in which he, in effect, said that Kenneth Littleton, a tutor, who didn't even know Martha, never met her, was the killer. More recently, he's come up with a race, with racist nonsense that two black teenagers from the Bronx were the killers of Martha. Now, here's what you have to understand, and you said it at the beginning. She was beaten so savagely that the golf club split into three pieces, and mm. she was then stabbed through mm. the neck. Oh. That is called, in law enforcement circles, rage reaction. It's gratuitous violence. Oh. And the implication is that the killer knew the victim. He had a personal reason to do this. Kenneth Littleton, the tutor, didn't know her. These black guys who Kennedy manufactured out of thin air didn't know her either. The only people who knew her who were involved in this thing were Michael Skakel and his brother Tommy. But also, in addition to that overwhelming evidence, there were so many people who said that Skakel seemingly ambivalent about the crime itself, confessed to the killing to multiple people. Yeah, I, you know, in my opinion, some of those confessions uh, were, were done unfairly. I mean, he was, he was up at a, some institution where it was like a, um, it was, it was like a boot camp, and uh, he was under terrific pressure. The confessing that he did that I find most credible is not, I, you know, I'm a Kennedy, I can get away with it. He never would have said something like that because the Skakels didn't even like the Kennedys. But rather that he kept telling people, I've done something terrible. I don't know what it is. I can't remember. I know I was with her the night of the murder. He kept putting himself closer and closer to the murder scene, which he did not have to do. And finally... He comes up with this bizarre story. He comes back at midnight. He goes out. He climbs a, a, a tree outside Martha's window. He masturbates in the tree. And that's, 
<laughs> and then he hears voices and he runs away. He's putting himself at the murder scene. He's putting himself now with the sexual, sexual overtones right at the time that many people feel Martha was murdered. He puts himself there himself. That's the evidence. The role of, uh, of cousin Robert Kennedy Jr. in this, you had some choice words about him a short time ago. Whilst some of the Kennedys turned their back on Skakel, RFK Jr. was steadfast in his support of Michael. Do you think that helped sway the decision of the Supreme Court? It did, as a matter of fact. It, it, it persuaded the chief judge on the case. Well, let me say this. Robert Kennedy bought a bill of goods from a convicted felon. This convicted felon who claims he was a cousin of the basketball player, Kobe Bryant, is the one who says these two black guys from the Bronx did it and they confessed to me. It's, not, it's absolute racist nonsense. And Kennedy bought it. And the only other person that bought this argument was the chief judge of the case. Mm. When, the, when, they, when they tried to get a new trial based on that new evidence, the judge threw it out. The Skakels appealed to the Connecticut Supreme Court. They threw it out. But the one judge, the chief judge in that of the case, said, well, I think there's credibility to uh, what this man is saying. The only other person beside Robert Kennedy Jr. who bought this nonsense was uh, the case's chief judge. Uh, we talked about this in our first segment today about justice being uh, delayed. This is a case seemingly for the Moxleys where justice has been denied. Uh, That's correct. Because if I ask you the question, if Michael Skakel didn't do it, who did? And will someone else be charged in this case? I think I know what your answer is going to be. I don't think anybody else is going to be charged. I, I doubt that they're going to retry him. And it's... um. You know, I'm not sure that they should retry him. I mean, let, you know, let's get real here. Michael has done 10 years in jail. Mm. I'm not sure anybody wants to see, even the Moxleys, I'm not sure that they want to see him back in jail. I think what the Moxleys do want is a recognition from the Skakel family that the Skakels, that Michael Skakel did this thing, an apology, and they're never going to get it. What about a wrongful death case? Well, that's a civil suit, uh, which is, you know, Hasn't happened yet. This case has gone on for 40 years. Still could happen. Could happen. You're right. It might well be the way that they can. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. That might be the way to go. Okay. Well, Leonard Levitt, thank you very much for joining us here on All Rise. Your book, Conviction, Solving the Moxley Murder, is available on Amazon and at all good bookstores. We appreciate your time on this long-running dramatic saga, The Death of the Teen Beauty Martha Moxley. Thank you, Len, for your time. Thank you so much. Two very famous cases summed up with a very similar theme this week. Justice denied to the family of Martha Moxley, who now continue on in their life knowing that Michael Skakel had his murder conviction overturned. And to those alleged victims of Bill Cosby, justice delayed. And will it be justice denied? That's the question, because Judge Stephen O'Neill must now sentence Cosby to up to 10 years in jail. That won't happen for six months, and many fear he might be given a hall pass from the hallways of a Pennsylvania prison. This has been All Rise Season 1, Episode 5, the only podcast with the guts to tell it like it is. <laughs>